let's turn to the book of 2 Kings. Yeah, you heard me right, not 1 Kings. 2 Kings, as we continue to look together at the story of the people of Israel. Let us now give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. 1 Kings, chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers, telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed which, to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of a man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elisha the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty, men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, 
but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts that Ahaziah, that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Let us seek our Lord's blessing upon his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning from your word, that you would illumine it to our minds and our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, occasionally I have opportunity to make a confession to you all. I will do that again this morning. When I was a, a young boy and growing up, one of my favorite shows on television was Batman. And lest you think and, and side with my wife that I wasn't a very cool young boy and teenager, this Batman was a bit different than current Batmans. He didn't have... Uh, Motorcycle with a huge wheel that would jump buildings. He didn't have uh, times when he worked out and had huge muscles. He actually had a little, was a little bit overweight. And, but what he did have was when he punched people, he had big bam, pow, would show up. And every time at the end of the show, they would say, Tune in next time. Same bat time. Same bat chance. And every other show, either Batman or Robin, or Batman and Robin, or Batman and Robin and the Commissioner, would be in some sort of deadly peril, and you didn't know what was going to happen, and they would say, tune in next time. Wait and see. Well, those of you that know the show know that the same thing happened every time when we tuned back in. There was usually something in Batman's utility belt, or if he couldn't reach it, in Robin's, and they would be saved from deadly peril. It was the same thing we would see over and over again. Now, humanly speaking, that's what we are now entering into with Second Kings. We took a little bit of a break, but we're coming back. Same Israel time, same Israel channel. We see the same problems cropping up yet again. Ahab is dead. That's the good news. The horrible idolater that persecuted God's prophets, that killed people for gain. He's dead, but Baal worship goes on in his son. You see, we look and we're going to wait and see chapter after chapter what might happen in 2 Kings. But we already know, just like we knew the outcome of that television show, we already know what's going to happen. The people of Israel are going to continually turn their hearts and minds from God. So what I would like us to see this morning is the difficulties that King Ahaziah brings upon himself as the son of Ahab and Jezebel. Not exactly the best upbringing one could ask for. But what I want us to see here this morning are first in the text, dumb idols. That is an intentional pun on words. Dumb idols. And then we will look and see a deadly confrontation. Dumb idols lead to a deadly confrontation. And then finally, we will see the Lord appear in deliverance and declaration. Dumb idols, 
Deadly confrontation, deliverance, and declaration. Well, let's look then here at the beginning of chapter 1. What's going on as we enter back into our story of the history of Israel? The situation here is a bit precarious. As I've said, Ahab has passed on from the scene. We don't have word of Jezebel's death, and we will learn a little later on that she is still alive and kicking, and probably kicking around the prophets of God, telling her son what is the way in which a king behaves, the same way in which she was so willing to tell Ahab what to do about every four or five minutes. Now we imagine that she's advising her son. But the situation is a little bit more precarious, because... Israel has gone from being a very strong kingdom, a kingdom in which Ahab has actually sent armies to assist the Assyrians uh, against their enemies. Now, one of its vassal states, Moab, has chosen to rebel. That's the first thing that we hear. Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, this is not just a little fact thrown in here to lead us into the text. You need to realize that Moab had been tribute, had given tribute to Israel since the days of David. So it has been a very long time, and they pick now as their spot to rebel. That gives you an idea about the weakness of the man who's on the throne. So now that Ahab is dead, the politics are changing a bit. Moab is rebelling. But other things don't change. If you look back a page or a column... At 1 Kings chapter 22, I will remind you in verse 52 that Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. So, nothing has changed on that front. Ahaziah is a chip off the old rotten woodblock. He's following up, worshipping Baal. And what happens to make the situation even more precarious is he's wandering about the house one evening and falls through either a window or some, uh, you know, this kind of thin wooden lattice flooring. But what happens is he falls down and he's hurt pretty bad. He's hurt so badly that he's not sure he's going to live. And so he says, let's send off messengers because I need to ask Beelzebub, this God, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So the situation here is very precarious. And in the middle of a very difficult situation, there's hostility on the political front. The king may not live. What does he do? Well... It's almost as if he sat down and said, what is the dumbest possible thing I can do? Let me do that. It's foolish, because first of all, it's foolish on a theological level. He says, let me go ask Baal, the god of Ekron, if I'll survive. Now, it's been a few weeks, but you all recall when we looked at 1 Kings 18, right? Do we see how powerful Baal was? Couldn't do a thing. Go ahead, Elijah said. Call down fire from heaven. I can wait. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's taking a nap. Go ahead, yell some more, yell louder. 
and they go around and they yell and they cut themselves and they do what they can, and Baal is nowhere to be found. Now, we can imagine that it's very likely that Ahaziah was there when it happened, probably attending as the crown prince on his father. You can be sure it was talk of the royal household, probably interrupted by his mother throwing pots, jars, and vases across the room when this was mentioned, Mount Carmel. So it's not something he would have forgotten about. The other thing that he should know about that makes this incredibly foolish is the last time that Ekron is mentioned in the history of Israel, it's when the Ark of the Covenant shows up. And the people there are so afraid of the Ark, not God, of the ark, that they say, get it out of here. We don't want any part of this. We hear the last town it was in, people were dropping like flies. This place, Ekron, is a backwater Philistine town that has been shown to be a failure before God. It's 45 miles away. So the king of Israel, whose kingdom had just been Baal central under his mother and father, now can't even find a priest of Baal within 45 miles. This is like, this is like saying to one of those persons who ran for Congress, you know, one of those sacrificial lambs that they set up and they lose like 78 to 22%, to ask them what would be good policies to enact in Washington. Hello, it's already over. You've lost. Why are you going to the loser, Ahaziah? It's foolishness. It's not just theological foolishness, it's practical foolishness. Some of you may have heard this, that the definition of insanity is doing the exact same thing and expecting different results. That's what Ahaziah is doing. Baal didn't work for his mother. Baal didn't work for his father. Idol worship didn't work for Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And yet he wants to pursue this. It's complete foolishness. The reason that it's so foolish and the reason that he does it is because he has a commitment to Baal. You see, this is not everybody is a Baal worshiper in a foxhole. Or everybody in a hospital throws up offerings to Baal. You see, he goes to Baal because he's got a preconceived commitment to this false god. He has already decided, even before he's sick, that the God of Israel is no God at all. And will not help him. And so he says, I'm dying here, guys. Would you please go, oh, two, three days journey over into this place of our enemies and find out from some priest if I'm going to live. It's completely foolish. It's a reminder to us that difficulties in our lives may sober us, but they don't necessarily make us smart. You see, he knew he needed help here. He knew that this was something to be concerned about, but he still makes a foolish choice. And that foolish choice draws a rebuke from an ignored God. He sends off to Ekron... And God does not take this lying down. You see, God does not appreciate being ignored, being made the second fiddle, being told that He doesn't really exist, and if He does, He doesn't have any power. 
God does not take this line down. He takes His messenger to go intercept the king's messengers. And so He sends His messenger, likely an angel, to go to Elijah to tell him to interrupt these messengers. This should not surprise us. Because the God of the Bible is a true, living God. The God of the Bible does not enjoy being insulted. The God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not enjoy being an angry epithet on the golf course. He pursues people. You know how this works even in your own families. Or or perhaps an illustration will suffice. There's that famous scene from The Godfather where Michael Corleone's wife is telling him what she's going to do. And he looks at her with this steel in his eyes, and he says, Don't you understand I would never let you do that? Don't you understand I would use everything in my power to prevent that? And we know from the story how powerful Michael is. Now think about that with God. If we're going to presume upon God and insult God, don't you think God will do everything in His power to preserve His name? That God's power is infinite. This is something that God does not want to take lying down. And so He goes because He means to stop Ahaziah from implying that He does not exist. And the messenger goes to Elijah and he says, Arise, go up to meet the messengers. And the language here is very familiar to another passage we've looked at in 1 Kings 21. You remember when God told Elijah, Arise, go down and confront Ahab over Naboth. You see the same things happening here. God means to stop a king in his tracks and to show him who is God and who is not. And the language that God uses here is very clear. You know, it's interesting, the God of the Scriptures is not exactly sensitive to our 21st century sensibilities, is He? Our Lord God here is not a very good politician. He doesn't try and work Ahaziah. You know, this would be an unwise thing for you to do. Think of your children. Think of your kingdom. How can... How can I help you? How can you help me to help you? No, he says, you will surely die. He confronts Ahaziah. He says, you will not presume upon my name. But even in the midst of this wrath that bubbles up, even in the midst of a sovereign God declaring His sovereignty and His rule, there is mercy. You see, because here there is a a last opportunity, as it were, to repent. God says, you will surely die. He doesn't strike him dead right there. He sends the messengers back. He takes his prophet and he, in the midst of his fury, he shows love. You see, the great blessing to us is that idolatry is not as easy as we think it is. You see, if we are caught in idolatry, perhaps it's not Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, or the god of North Dallas. Perhaps it's money. Perhaps your god took a pretty big hit last month in terms of his power. 
Perhaps it's health. Perhaps it's your children, or your job, or your church. You see, God does not want it to be easy for you to have idolatry. He throws obstacles in your way to show you who is sovereign, to show you the way of life. And that's what he's doing here with Ahaziah. So if you think about it, are you facing now difficulty in a sin? A sin that you know that you should let go of, that you should repent of, but but not right now. The difficulty that you're facing in that sin is God coming to you in a way of mercy to show you the way of life, to show you that that sin leads to death. Perhaps it's a stray glance at other ladies in the mall. Perhaps it's a conversation that's too long that you should have. Perhaps it's anger that bubbles up that should not. God will place difficulties in your way. Well, these idols that are dumb, they do not speak and they are foolish, lead to the Lord God confronting these idolaters. It leads to a deadly confrontation. No, not the confrontation that Elijah has with these messengers, but a very deadly confrontation. Well, before we get there, though, we know that Ahaziah is provoking God. He's declared that there is no God, that he despises God's authority. And so God does something very interesting to him. Ahaziah basically said, God doesn't have any authority over me. I'll pick my own God. And I'll send my messengers to do it. And they go off. And Elijah meets them beforehand, and he says, no, turn around. And you know what happens? They obey Elijah. Can you imagine how angry the king would be? You can almost hear it from the text. They're not gone very long. It's a couple of day journey, and he figures they'll have lunch. Maybe they'll stop off on the road on the way back, a couple of days back. And here they are. It's been two hours, and they're back. Why are you back so soon? Why have you returned? And they say, well, we met this man, and he told us to turn around, and we did. Think about the power of that authority of the servant of God. The king here has the power of life and death. His next sentence could be, okay, uh, this is the executioner. Please chop their heads off. But Elijah has such authority because he's a man of God that even the messengers obey. And Ahaziah could not help but see the irony in this, that God is showing him who's really in charge, who's in charge of his life. Well, but Ahaziah doesn't learn the lesson. As we've said, he's a chip off the old block. Just like Ahab was slow on the uptake, so is Ahaziah. Because what he does is he figures, well, if you can't out-talk God, you out-muscle him. He says, send 50 up to get Elijah. Now, you have to realize something that you might not get from a sanitized reading of the text. This is not an RSVP. This is not a royal uh, escort that wants to carry Elijah in on their shoulders and say, please come meet the king. This is a SWAT hit team. They have no intention of bringing Elijah back safely to the king. They have orders to wipe him out. This is a show of force. This is an attack by the king on God and his servant. Do you see what he's doing? He's trusting in his own power and force. 
Even in the midst of all of this foolishness. We see this every day, don't we? We see people and individuals who think that they can outwit God with their money. They think, well, God says that I'm going to die, I'm going to spend $7 million and I'm going to build one of these cryogenic machines to freeze my brain. And I'll live forever. Sounds foolish, doesn't it? But isn't that the same kind of foolishness that says, I'm not sure God can take care of me, so I'm going to trust in my own two hands. Or in the money that I've saved up. Or in my powers of persuasion. You see, God here has shown Ahaziah who's in charge, and Ahaziah is bucking against the trend. And so he sends this 50, and the, the language here is, is almost humorous. He says, O man of God, come down. The king says, come down. Now think about that. Does the captain think Elijah is a man of God? No, or if he is, it doesn't mean anything. He's not afraid. The captain's there thinking, I've got 50 guys, 25 spears, a couple of guys with bows and arrows, one guy with a hairy shirt and a belt. This is no problem. We'll be having chow early tonight. And then Elijah says, again, you can almost hear the sarcasm, well, if I'm a man of God, guess what? Let fire come down from heaven. Foop! A bunch of ashtrays. Now, before you think here for a minute that just because there's a little sarcasm involved that Elijah's doing something he shouldn't do, remember where the fire comes from. It comes from heaven. What Elijah's saying is, if I really am a man of God, and if you really have in your heart what you say you have, God will judge you for it right now. And so, this man is destroyed. And then, the word goes out to a second man. Now, I want you to imagine, the second captain is in the barracks, and he's flipping through Fox News, and CNN, and MSN, and scrolling across the bottom. Captain and 50 men turned into carbon puddles. Fire from heaven comes down and wipes out whole brigade. Right? And what does he say? All right, I'll go get him. Look at the arrogance of the second man, and you can see it in his language. Does he say, O oh man of God, come down? No. He says, O oh man of God, this is the king's order. Quickly come down. He uses that adverb. He doesn't just say, come down. He says, get down here now. The king's command. Well, we know where this one's going, don't we? This is even a further affront to God's authority and to his messenger. You know, you can almost, you know this, parents, right? You know that tone of voice when you say to the children, I need you to clean your room. And you don't get much movement, and you look and you say, I want you to, now really, I mean it here, go clean your room. This guy thinks he can outmuscle God where the other guy couldn't. And so what happens to him? Same story. Now we imagine the third man. The third man is sitting there. He's flipping through the channels. And now the commentators are saying, you know, the, this might not have been an isolated weather incident as it was the first time. This might, there might actually be a pattern here. What do you think? And then they cut to the field and he says, well, there's two large piles of ash here. 
And you can almost sense his nervousness. Then a telegram comes in. Guess what? Suit up. You're up. It's kind of like that, that scene from Save it, Saving Private Ryan where they're trying to get the machine gun nest and they're sending guys to go get them. Your turn. You're like, oh, no, not my turn. Sure destruction there. So he goes off. But he's got a little bit of a different outlook on life. And so here we see deliverance and declaration. We see deliverance for this man because this man goes out. And the context in which he goes out is the same as the one before. Look at verse 13. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty. The king has not changed his mind at all. Think about that. Think about the rebellion and the sin that binds up his heart. It's there in black and gray and some more black right before him. And he says again, send another one. But this man goes up and he says, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. You see, now the phrase, O man of God, has a very different ring to it, doesn't it? You can almost hear it in your ear. He's not using it pejoratively. He's not demanding. He's saying, I know you're a man of God. I know you're more powerful than the king. Would you please spare me and spare my troops? And if we think about that, isn't this really a model for the way Israel should be reacting to God throughout all of this First and Second Kings? Seeing God's power and responding in repentance and acknowledgement of God's power? Isn't that a model for us? As we see bad things around us, isn't it a model for us to seek out the Lord God and to say, Lord, be merciful to us? Or is it easier for us to just scramble and try and put together the pieces a little bit better? There's something else here that I think we need to, as 21st century Christians, understand. If you think this man approaches Elijah this way because he's afraid, you are completely right. You can almost imagine this guy's knees knocking on the way up. Sometimes, terror is a good thing. Terror is a good thing if it drives us away from death and destruction. We should have a healthy fear of very dangerous, deadly things. And here we see this terror leads not only to being real, but it leads to being a saving terror. There's a story in, related by several authors of George Whitfield. You may remember who George Whitfield is. He was a preacher in the Great Awakening. And he was an itinerant preacher. They used to go and set up pulpits outside because they couldn't get everybody inside the church. And one Lord's Day he was preaching on Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. He opened his Bible and he read the text. It is appointed one, it is appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. He read the text, 
Seconds later, there was a scream from the audience. Someone had been struck dead. Heart attack, perhaps. Stroke, we don't know. It's the 18th century. They clear out the area, take a few moments break. Whitfield gets back up, and he says, My text this morning is Hebrews 9, chapter 27. It is appointed to man once to die, and then the judgment. A second scream comes out from the audience. A second man has been struck dead. They clear the area. He stands up to read the text. Can you imagine anyone fidgeting when he read the text the third time? Can you imagine anyone not paying attention to the text? My guess is that every soul in that hearing was fixed upon every word Whitfield said. In the providence of God. You see, sometimes terror can drive us to a good understanding and drive us to God. Well, this third man comes in. He's been, his mind has been focused, as it were, on the issue at hand. And then I want you to notice something that happens here. It's not Elijah that lets him off the hook. It's God. You see that? The angel comes down and says, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. The angel says, you had reason to be afraid of the other two, not of this one. We see that God is completely in charge here. If you want to be upset because these 50, well, no, 102 men are destroyed, do not be upset with Elijah. Do not be like modern commentators that say he was, you know, a little bit, stubborn, he was a mean man, he wasn't thick. No, be upset with God. Because it's God that's defending his name. There's no more fear at this point. They go off and they go to the king. But it's not just that the man is delivered. Now God is going to get set to make a delivery. He's going to deliver on the threat that is before him. You see, Elijah might have thought that now the story would change. You can see Elijah coming in, and Ahaziah might think, well, now things have changed. The fireballs have stopped. I see my captain. Okay, count the men. All right, good. But you see, the contest wasn't one of force. It was one of truth. God doesn't need to win by destroying every person under Ahaziah's command. The contest is one of who's right and what's true. And do you see what Elijah brings? It's the exact same message at the beginning of the story. Ahaziah hasn't changed him at all. It's a threat. And it's a fearful threat. Because if you think about it, the only thing we really know about Ahaziah is how he died. We don't really know what his reign was about. All we really know about him is that he died. All we really know is that he had, in the ultimate need of his life, in the time of his greatest concern, he made an unbelievably foolish decision. At the time when he needed the Lord most, he deliberately ran away from the Lord. 
and deliberately mocked God. And we see how clearly God fulfills His Word. Look at this in verse 17. This is our author here. You can almost imagine it's, he's tossing this off as an afterfact. So, he died according to the Word of the Lord. You can almost imagine our author saying, you know, God said it. So, yeah, he did it. This phrase, according to the Word of the Lord, occurs 20 times throughout this First and Second Kings. It's God telling us over and over and over again, when I say something, I mean it, and I do it. Now, that strikes great fear into a sinner like Ahaziah. But to the Christian, does that give you great hope? Does it give you great hope to know that God is in the business of, I said it, I do it. So when God says, I have prepared for my children a mansion, does that give you great comfort to know that He's done it? Does it give you great comfort to know when He says, nothing shall separate you from me in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said it. He's done it. The same Lord who fulfills His threats here to Ahaziah is the same one who fulfills His promises. <coughs> so in conclusion, we have this story, like many of the stories of the kings, it's an odd story. It's a fearful story. But it's a story that's meant to remind us that the Lord God is the sovereign king of the universe. The Lord God is not to be mocked. And at the same time, the Lord continues to show mercy and patience. Is that the Lord that you know? One who is patient with you through all of your mistakes, all of your sins, all of your problems, all of your difficulties. This is the Lord who is to be honored and served. This is the Lord who has given His Son that you might be in relationship with Him. This is not just the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the Lord, the God of the universe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have reminded us that You are in control. And we pray this morning, O Lord, that You would show us, that You would show us Your great blessing, that You would shower upon us knowledge and wisdom, that we might serve You. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.